This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome to the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. It's Seth Yarshaw from Vancouver filling in for Jeff Merrick, and he's got some work to do. He does a lot of stuff. Jeff, Jeff Merrick at 32 Thoughts Podcast alongside Elliot Friedman, of course, Hockey Night in Canada. Very busy man, and the content you crave on the 32 Thoughts Podcast doesn't create its on its own. It needs well-thought-out ideas, time set aside, working towards creating the content you want. So that's what Jeff Merrick's up to today. So I'm here today to discuss all things National Hockey League across the Sportsnet Radio Network and we usually have Elliot Friedman in the first segment, but unfortunately, he had to bail. Now, I know uh, Elliot, I'm seeing him tomorrow in Vancouver because we're both both hosting the Canucks for Kids Telethon. It's Telethon night in Vancouver, so uh, I'll, I'll give him a piece of my mind when I see him. No, it's, it's all good. Uh, I know Elliot has something to do, so he's not going to make it for the first segment. But we have a lot to get to here on the show today, so I look forward to discussing all things defense, the New Jersey Devils, and how the game is trending with Ken Danico, former National Hockey League defenseman, knows a lot about the New Jersey Devils. He's going to join us coming up at 9.30, coming up at 10. We'll continue a theme on defense with drafting defensemen and building front offices with Shane Malloy. And then at 10.30, Corey Massasak is going to join us, the athletic from the San Jose Sharks coverage. And, of course, we all know James Reimer declined to wear a Pride jersey on the weekend. And, of course, a big topic of conversation. And we'll discuss this uh, quite a bit more, especially when we have Corey on to get the sense of what happened in San Jose, what what it all means moving forward, and, of course, uh, the fallout from that decision. But the thing I wanted to say about it before we get to it a bit more in-depth at 1030 I thought Brian Burke, who's really been a trailblazer in this, really nailed it earlier. Pittsburgh Penguins, president of hockey operations. And I'll share this quote on him on Sharks Pride Night. I repeat that I'm extremely disappointed. I wish players would understand that the Pride sweaters are about inclusion and welcoming everybody. A player wearing Pride colors or tape isn't endorsing a set of values or enlisting in a cause. He is saying you are welcome here and you are in every single NHL building. To me, uh, what Brian Burke said there really resonates, and we'll discuss, discuss that quite a bit more as the show goes on here, especially coming up. Uh, and, what well, I guess 10.30 Vancouver time, and I suppose that would be 1.30 uh, Eastern time as I make sure I get it all on lock here for everybody uh, across the country here. Now, one of the things that also has happened over the last little bit here is the playoff race really crystallizing. And it was interesting looking at the Eastern Conference, and for the longest time we kind of thought – uh, the Eastern Conference would be, see, uh, the conference that would be the most exciting playoff race, especially with young and upcoming teams like the Detroit Red Wings and the Buffalo Sabres really banging on the door to play a playoff, be a playoff squad. And we know the Sabres have really struggled. They got absolutely trounced the other night, 7 nothing, And now they've lost three straight, and they're finding themselves far out of the playoff picture. And the Red Wings themselves, well, we all know they sold at the trade deadline, now 2-7-1 and of the last 10. So it's really become a race for three teams to f- fit, get those final two wildcard spots. And it's the New York Islanders, Pittsburgh Penguins, and the Florida Panthers still kind of hanging around in that race. And the Penguins, well got to feel a bit dicey after losing three straight so I think that to me has been interesting because we look at the Western Conference playoff race now and that has also had a door open with the way the Winnipeg Jets have struggled they they find themselves now in a spot where they have a four-point lead on the Calgary Flames for the final wildcard spot but Calgary has a game in hand and 
one of the things I want to focus in on here, and we'll kind of build through this uh, as the show goes on, talking about defense. And I joke about this quite a bit on the postgame show in Vancouver uh, covering the Canucks and on Canucks Central that I'm kind of turning into an old hockey man in terms of uh, wanting to see better defending across the National Hockey League. And the game's changed quite a bit. I, and I got to say, I, mean, I love offense. I love skill. I love back and forth hockey as much as anybody does. But one thing I also like is watching successful hockey teams. And in Vancouver, we haven't seen a successful hockey team in in quite some time. And the last time we saw a really good team here is going back to that 2011 era team that obviously came short of ultimately winning the Stanley Cup. But not only was that team incredible offensively, not only were they good on the power play, not only were they they good on the PK, they got goaltending galore with Roberto Luongo, of course, and Corey Schneider. But what they did really well was defend 5-on-5. Five five. They were as good as any team 5-on-5, five five, save maybe the Boston Bruins that year, in defending. And that's what really put them in that upper echelon of being a president trophy team and being a true Stanley Cup contender. And we've been discussing how Vancouver's fallen short in terms of <laughs> not only building talent, but style of play, development, every single facet of team building this past decade has really fallen short in Vancouver. So we've really focused on how do you build a, just a okay hockey team? And all I keep coming back to is if you can't defend, you have no chance. Like, and I don't care if you're a playoff team that can score a bunch of goals, you're exciting, you're fun. You're not going to do anything. You can have 100 points. You can have the best offensive players. If you don't understand how to be on the right side of the puck, if you're not in this right spot defensively, it does not matter. And those types of habits, I think, are becoming more and more important as the game kind of becomes more fluid in the regular season. We see how different the game becomes in the postseason. And when you look at all that, I, for the life of me, can no longer understand any argument for players who are just offensive. Like, I'm cool with it. If you're a team that's in transition, you're trying to build towards something, sure, you want to have some exciting, fun hockey players. But if you have guys who can't or are unwilling to put in the work to defend and play within a structure for your team, you're not going to be successful. And we've seen that just firsthand on, on a very basic, rudimentary level here in Vancouver. But then you extrapolate it to the bigger teams and the great contenders. And I know it's been a big topic of discussion, this obviously in Toronto, about the Leafs and how they're trying to knock on, on, on that door and how do we get past the first round and how can we beat teams like the, like the Tampa Bay Lightning, like the Boston Bruins, the teams in our division that obviously have done it before and, and know how to play in every facet of the game. And i got to give the Toronto Maple Leafs credit for how they've played this season. I mean, I think they've really focused in on that. Obviously, they're not the Boston Bruins in defending. I don't think anybody is this season. But I think there's a real focus on this is how we need to play hockey. And if you start having those fundamentals in place, you get into the postseason, you're going to have a better chance of having that type of a success. And the thing about it is, and we'll discuss this a bit more, especially with, with Ken Danico, former NHL defenseman, and even uh, with Shane when we talk about drafting players and development and how you get those players to that next level. And it ultimately just comes down to discipline and hard work. Now, you need to obviously have a level of two-way intelligence and a, a level of understanding what to do. But it just comes down to how hard and disciplined you are in terms of your work ethic on the ice as well. I mean, you look at the Tampa Bay Lightning. They, they, for the first time in a couple of years now in the regular season, are having some bigger swoons than we've seen in the past and even getting to the point where John Cooper is calling them out and asking them whether they think they can flip a switch because you can't just do that. And Stamkos has spoken out about that as well. And I think part of that is just the, the amount of fatigue 
the Tampa Bay Lightning have for years of trying to play the right way. I mean, I had a discussion with Rick talking about this a few weeks ago. We were talking about just details in games and in terms of being on the right side of the puck. And if you want to be on the right side of the puck, and that means trying to take away the inside, if you're going into a board battle, are you taking the right angle away? Are you are you willing to put in the physical sacrifice, the body positioning, and the hurt it's going to take for you to be on the right side of the puck? That not only takes, obviously, willingness – it's exhausting. Like you need to be really well conditioned. You need to have the mental fortitude to fight through that, you know, shift in and shift out and do it consistently. And that's why it's just incredibly impressive to watch what this Tampa Bay Lightning team has done. You just kind of wonder, are they at a point where they, they're just hitting that mental and physical exhaustion of consistently being on top of every single little detail and doing it as well and successfully as they have been. And I think that's part of maybe some of the struggle for that Tampa Bay Lightning team as we look at the playoff picture this year and say which teams can go far. And maybe that's your, your hope if you're a Toronto that that's the reason why you can get past them. Because I think if, if Toronto, for instance, if they're getting saves and they're playing the way they know how to play, You have a real opportunity this season because I look at this entire playoff picture. The Boston Bruins find themselves obviously in a class of their own with how they played this season. And I, I wouldn't bet against them, especially at this stage. So I would put them in a tier of their own. But after that, I'd say it's essentially Toronto, Tampa Bay. I put New Jersey in that. And then the Colorado Avalanche. To me, like those four teams next, they, they are real, actual, like, in-and-out contenders. And the reason I, I think they're all contenders, not only do they have the talent up front, they know how, they have the defense, but they have some decent goaltending, but they're starting to buy into that focal point of this is how we have to play consistently to be able to win. And that's what why I put them in a different category. And I love to put the Carolina Hurricanes there. I love to put the Carolina Hurricanes there. I just, I'm just not sure I can put them there because of the injuries they have right now. I mean... Hey, Svechnikov is a tough blow. And even Max Pacioretty was a tough blow. And they did a good job in trying to fill it out, uh, getting some depth moves at the trade deadline. They did what they could. But this is a team that was after Timo Meyer. This is a team that was obviously somewhat interested in a player like Bo Horvat because they really need pure goal scorers. And the only thing that's been lacking for Tampa Bay, I mean, sorry, for the Carolina Hurricanes in the postseason, they know how to defend. Saves, it has been a bit up and down here and there, but generally that's been all right. Just not scoring enough goals. And as much as they're a team that can grind you and they play the right way and all those things, you still need to have guys that are one-shot goal scorers that can do that consistently. That's one thing that team is lacking. And, you know, I know it never really got far in terms of their pursuit or interest in a player like Bo Horvat, but the reason I thought it actually made a ton of sense for that team is Bo is one of the deadliest players in the National Hockey League from the bumper spot. His shot from the slot is as good as anybody. And JT Miller, a left-handed playmaker off the wall, would find him consistently. Now you had a one-time threat on the other side, which would open things up. But could you imagine on that Carolina Hurricanes power play with the playmakers they have, Svechnikov on the half wall when he's healthy, trying to set up Bo Horvat in the bumper spot. I think that would have been a big boon for their power play and having a, a one-shot score, potentially, that could really open things up for them. Now you don't have Svechnikov. You don't have Pacioretty. I just wonder if they have enough pure goal scorers for them to truly be in that top tier of contenders. And that's the only reason why I put them just a hair below those other four teams and the Boston Bruins. But they're firmly entrenched in a group of teams that I include the New York Rangers, the Dallas Stars, 
the Los Angeles Kings even, and the Edmonton Oilers. The Minnesota Wild, we can talk about as well. And we'll get to them coming up in a second because I think they're an absolutely fascinating case study about a good hockey team, but that has about everything you'd want except for one thing. And we'll talk about that one thing coming up in just a couple of moments. But the Dallas Stars, (laughs) now, if we're talking about defending, if we're talking about a team that is consistently playing quote-unquote the right way, that's a team that's really been greater than, than some of its parts this year. And a lot of it is their young guy, guys are taking steps. Amir Heiskanen has been one of the best defenders in the National Hockey League for a few years now. But he's really taking a step as even a, being an offensive producer at the level that he's playing at. So when I'm looking at Miro Heiskanen, the way that defense plays, Jason Robertson, Wyatt Johnson as a young player taking a step, they're a really scary team to me. Like they're the type of team that... They get in, they're in the playoffs. They're probably winning a round or two, and they're the type of squad that can knock out a contender, especially if Jake Ottinger stands on his head. So even though we, I'm kind of fading Carolina slightly, they're still kind of in that same group as the Dallas Stars team. Again, the common theme here is these teams know how to defend. These teams can get enough saves. And even the LA Kings, now their goaltending, obviously, we'll see where Corpus it has been an improvement. And when they have Kevin Fiala out, you really see like the, that sharpness up front is really lacking for that team. And they have a hard time uh, generating uh, some of that. They have a bit of a hard time generating just enough quality scoring chances, I think, when they don't have a guy like Kevin Fiala out there. We saw it against Vancouver the other night. A lot of possession for them. They had about almost 40 shots on goal, but the actual quality scoring chances, maybe not quite as much as you would want, considering the amount of possession time they had. I think that's one thing for them that could be a bit of an issue when they don't have like the sharpness in their attack with a guy like Kevin Fiala, for instance. So I think that's part of something that I look at with the uh, LA Kings, but the reason that I look at the Minnesota Wild and I say, I'm not sure where to put them as a contender if I have them kind of in that list of teams that have a chance of winning the Stanley Cup, just because I'm just not sure if they're strong enough down the middle. And if we look at teams that have won the Stanley Cup and truly pushed to be cup contenders, they legitimately have a real cornerstone centerman up front. Now, if you want to go back to uh, the 90s and perhaps and look at some Devils teams of the past, then we've seen, yeah, maybe you don't have that, that high echelon center. You still find a way to win. But you have to be so incredibly excellent every single other facet and get so much production and play driving from your wings and your D-men to make up for the lack of true production and and domination down the middle. And that's the one thing I worry about with the Minnesota Wild because if they develop that one center, I don't see too many weaknesses with that team. I mean, they have speed, they have size, they can do a bit of everything. They have goaltending, they have depth on the blue line with the additions they've made. That's the only question I have with them. But defending-wise, again, common theme, that team knows how to defend. And if we just keep going through all these squads, and that's why I can't look at this here and I say that the list of teams that could win a Stanley Cup is sizable. Like, we have about eight teams that could do it potentially, maybe nine teams. And if you want to look at some dark, dark horse teams potentially, we'll get to that in a second because I think there are two teams that might make the playoffs, one in each conference, who I would be terrified of playing in that first round because of, again, here's the buzzword, defense. We'll get to that coming up in just a moment's time here. But, you know, as far as the Edmonton Oilers are concerned, this is the one where I need more time. Ever since they made the Ekholm edition, I really liked how it's brought them together. I thought Jay Woodcroft had a great interview with uh, Merrick and Friedman on the 32 Thoughts podcast talking about how this team is building towards 
the details and building towards not being satisfied with just winning. It's about playing the right way and, and, and having a different level of expectation with how you're supposed to play hockey on a consistent basis. And I like a lot of what they're doing. I have some concerns about some individual players on their back end. Like I think Darnell Nurse has had some inconsistencies this year. He can play better. I think that will come together. I wonder about Evan Bouchard defending in the playoffs. We saw that being exposed at times. But as long as you have Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl and you have a commitment to at least trying to play the right way, I have a hard time fading you. But that's my question with the MS Oilers. Number one, goaltending, of course. Like, are you getting enough saves? But is that a team whose commitment to playing the right way is good enough in and of its own or whether you also have the players on the back end who might be committed to playing that way but whether they actually have the fortitude and the defensive excellence to really be able to push that team forward and that's kind of what i wonder about when it comes to them as far as where do they rank as contenders because i look at a team like the seattle kraken yeah they defend okay but you can find a lot of space against them their pk not very good I don't have much of faith, much faith in that team being able to make a book, big push up the standings this season. You look at a team like the Pittsburgh Penguins. Man, of course, you got Sidney Crosby, you have Eugenie Malkin, uh, you have Chris Letang. You can never bet against them, maybe putting it together, but they're not playing consistent hockey this year. Like They're, they're not playing the type of hockey that's repeatable game in and game out, and we don't have that consistency in your game, it's hard to all of a sudden just find and come the postseason. Because even teams that somehow make the playoffs that have been you know, floundering, usually they have certain uh, landmarks in their games that are non-negotiable that they've been working on all season. And a team like that, to some degree, and obviously they've been playing a lot better recently, is the New York Islanders. Because... They've been giving up a lot, but their goaltending has been great. And overall, their team, especially the past like few weeks to a month now, since making the Bo Horvat trade, they've really nailed things down in their own end and in their systems. Play. They're having success. They're getting saves. But they're a team that are also playing like game sevens every night right now. They play more games than anybody else. They can almost afford to lose no games at this point to maintain their playoff position. And that's the type of squad that... Once they get into the playoffs, if they do get into the playoffs with the goaltending they have, I'd be terrified to play them. Like, if they, if they get the first wild card spot and you play the Carolina Hurricanes, who we just talked about, with, you know, the guys missing up front, to me, that's an upset special I'd be so tempted to hit. I'd be so tempted to hit the New York Islanders being able to beat a team like the Carolina Hurricanes. Not because I think the Islanders are better than the Hurricanes. The Hurricanes are clearly the better hockey team, even with the injuries. But get into the postseason and you have the better goaltender, and you're playing low-scoring hockey games, guess who's been living in that world? And guess who's, who's been able to have success in that world recently? And they get Barzal back for the playoffs. That's a team that absolutely terrifies me as the New York Islanders. If I'm a contender in the Eastern Conference, I'm terrified of playing the New York Islanders in the first round. And in the, in the Western Conference, I think the door has been left open somewhat for the Calgary Flames. And I get people listening saying, the Calgary Flames, you've got to be out of your mind. That team, that team is having trouble scoring. They're underachieving. They absolutely are. They, they're underachieving. They've, they've, been able, they've had a hard time scoring. But their defense overall hasn't been all that bad. Their goaltending has been an issue. The only question is, can Jake and Markstrom figure it out? Because if he figures it out... That's a team with Daryl Sutter brand of hockey that I would be terrified of playing in the first round, too. And if the Winnipeg Jets don't get their act together, they have a four-point lead here on the Calgary Flames, and Calgary somehow sneaks in. Those are the teams that scare me. Like They know how to play hard defense. And 
I think the, uh, the Winnipeg Jets have usually fallen into that category in the past, and I thought the first half of the season they kind of did, but their game's really falling apart. So I'm not quite sure I have the level of confidence in the Winnipeg Jets maybe being the type of team that's going to be knocking on that door and being a terrifying uh, cup contender once you get into the postseason. But that's my takeaway here, kind of looking at the Western and Eastern Conference playoff pictures this season, and especially over the course of the weekend, things have really crystallized. And I just come away looking at it and saying the list of contenders to win the Stanley Cup is slightly bigger than I anticipated coming in. But if you can defend, you don't have a chance. And the teams that are fighting for a playoff spot to get in this season, look at the Florida Panthers. They've had trouble with goaltending. Their defense has been decimated with injuries. They're not having much of a sniff, and they've really fallen apart. We mentioned the Buffalo Sabres. We mentioned the Detroit Red Wings. And how about the Ottawa Senators? They've lost five in a row. Now, the Sens, uh, you know, God bless them with, with everything they tried to do. They went out and got Jacob Chikrin. They're a team that obviously has a lot of uh, ambition to try to put, put themselves over the top this year. But you see when the games start picking up, you see kind of the details in their game. We saw them here in Vancouver uh, last week when they played the Canucks. Their discipline isn't there. And as soon as Vancouver started leaning on them, Vancouver had a lead, you saw them getting a bit more distant, more far away from each other on the ice, trying to make some more desperation plays. And the thing that impresses me about, the reason I keep coming back here to playing the right way and and having the discipline in your game, is because that team, the Ottawa Sanders, when they were here in Vancouver, they got away from their game when all they needed to do was stay disciplined against Vancouver. You would still get your chances. And this is where what where, what the difference has been for a team like the Colorado Avalanche. And it's so instructive watching Kale McCarr play who can he can create a scoring chance pretty much anytime he's on the ice if he truly wants to. If there's a 50-50 puck and he's on the blue line, he should probably pinch for it and try to get it and most of the time he'll do something positive with it. But it's something about game management that does matter. You have to understand time and place. And just because you're down a goal doesn't mean you should be pinching recklessly for every 50-50 puck in your vicinity. Because sometimes you might lose that battle, and the chance you're giving up going the other way is a far greater scoring chance than the one you're going to be able to create for winning that puck battle. And yes, you may win that puck battle 9 out of 10 times, but all it takes is the one time you don't where a grade-A chance goes the other way. And that grade-A chance going the other way is a better chance than anything you're going to create out of the 9 times you win the puck in the offensive zone. And a guy like Keel McCart understands that. And there were games I watched that guy play. The Colorado Avalanche are down a goal, and he won't go for the puck. He'll stay in his position because he knows, let, let us fight for another shift. We'll get it back. And if we don't get it back, that's fine. We lost this hockey game, but we play this way consistently. We're going to win because we believe in playing this way. We've seen the results of playing this way. We have proof of concept for playing this way. And we're not going to deviate from that, even if we're trailing by one goal in the game because we have the discipline and the belief in how we're playing hockey. And that's where a team like Ottawa has such a long way to go. And you see it in games where they're trailing a little bit or things aren't going their way. You deviate from that game plan. And those are the things where I kind of look at and I'm like, I can understand why they've kind of hit the wall here. I can understand why a team like the Red Wings, who sold, obviously, have hit a wall. Same thing with the Buffalo Sabres. A lot of offense, a lot of firepower, a lot of excitement. But that discipline in their team game just has not been there. And uh, we'll, we'll continue this theme here on the Jeff Merrick Show. It is Satyar Shah uh, uh, filling in for Jeff today. And we're going to continue this discussion. Coming up next, we have Ken Danico joining us. We'll talk about how players are defending that New Jersey, New Jersey Devils team as well, obviously. Uh, they're, they're a team. They're a wagon. How's your defense setting up and how big of a contender are they? We'll get to that and more as Jeff Merrick Show goes on right here on the Sportsnet Radio Network. 
Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Back in on the Jeff Merrick Show. It's Satyar Shaw filling in today on this Monday. Having a lot of fun. A lot of stuff happened over the course of the weekend. We're going to be hooking up with our good friend Ken Danico, former National Hockey League defenseman. We'll talk about defense, common theme of this show to start off with. I've always joked that I'm becoming old hockey man. And I see teams defend well and sacrifice and do all those things. I get so excited watching hockey. It's, it's really been quite the journey of, of you know, and, and I got to say, I mean, I sit here, I'm, I'm joking about the old hockey man takes and, and all that. But obviously, the game has evolved so much and the analytics are just a crucial part of the game and, and not just the you know the public data i think the stuff that's happening behind the scenes that's more proprietary is really fascinating that the depths and levels they're going to and that stuff is so important and critical to the where the game's at but there's so much that goes into creating a good hockey team being a good hockey player and uh, the, the basics of fight, knowing what position to be in, battling and winning those battles, it's crucial. And if you can't do those things, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't. And, you know, you kind of come to that realization uh, the more and more you kind of watch hockey. And that's kind of where I'm at. So we'll talk to Ken Danico, building that out a bit more and talking about the, the New Jersey Devils. And, you know... Uh, I've been kind of giving my take here, uh, filling in for Jeff, and I know Matt Marchese is usually the uh, producer here, but filling in uh, is Tristan, uh, the producer who's on the show today, and, and also Lance, who's on uh, the technical side of things. But, but Tristan, thanks for doing all the heavy lifting for me today, making the job really easy. And we we're just having this, this discussion here about cup contenders. And from your perspective, you know, you know, watching the league closely this year, like what stands out to you? Like, do you? I mean, we talked about teams that can actually win the Stanley Cup. Like, how how do you see that list this season? I think it's honestly as wide open as could possibly be. And that's saying something with hockey because I'm one of the true believers that just get into the big dance and you have a shot, really. Like, we've seen eight seeds go on runs before. Uh, It seems like, you know, anyone taking out Boston seems like a far stretch, at least in the East at this point. Um, From a team that I really like to potentially knock them off, I really like the Rangers. I think they're finding their groove. I think they're hitting their stride at the right time last night. They put up six goals in the first period against uh, Nashville. Uh, I've loved the addition of uh, Vladimir Tarasenko. I think he's really gelled, especially mm-hmm. uh, with you know with Patrick Kane. And so I I think the Rangers potentially in the East. What do you think? Yeah, you know what? You're bringing the Rangers up, and I'm glad you did because that's a team that I keep looking at, and I'm like, well, how they're playing this year? They don't you know quite pass all my smell tests that I just kind of went through and, and talked about, but but. They have the basis for it. I mean, you go through that team, you look at their defense, look at the goaltending, and Shesterkin maybe hasn't been quite at the level you would expect. You know he can find that form in a real hurry, too. And we saw that team adjust and play better in the postseason. Like, their, their overall style of play improved greatly. Their speed was was such a edge to them last year in the playoffs. And getting Tarasenko, getting Patrick Kane, they have a lot. Like, to me, I'm, I'm kind of with you here, Tristan, that if they find a way to win this game, I mean, sorry, if, if the uh, New York Rangers get into the playoffs and they win their first round matchup and they end up in that second round, they're a team that can really make life miserable for whoever they face. And let's say the Carolina Hurricanes, like we mentioned, play the New York Islanders and the Islanders win. 
the Rangers win their first round. There's a real pathway here for the Rangers this season. I think if they get to the Eastern Conference Final, they're a team that's going to be really, really dangerous. So, so I kind of get it there with the New York Rangers. My only question, though, would, would just kind of be about Patrick Kane. Like, How much can you rely on him? And do you feel like because you went out and traded for him, you have to use him more than he's able to? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it really depends on, you know, their line. I know they're tinkering with the line combinations. I know Gerard Gallant has yeah. been trying to, you know, try different things up. I think that they really have found their mesh uh, recently. Like I just said, they've won four in a row. They just, <laughs> they beat Pittsburgh 6 nothing and the Predators 7 nothing. So the offense is clicking. I, I think, honestly, more more so than being worried about Patrick Kane is more the defense. I know there's been some injuries, especially Ryan Lindgren has been out for uh, a little bit. So, that would probably be my main concern with them. Uh, yeah. Yeah, hey, uh, Tris, good, good insight there on the New York Rangers. That's Tristan Marjani uh, producing the show tonight in Lance on the technical side of things from Matt Marchese and Jeff Merrick. We're, we're team effort tonight putting the, t- the show together. But, you know, on the Rangers side of things, it's certainly a team that I've been kind of looking at really closely. We've kind of put them in that next tier after Boston. There's a group of four teams we kind of look at, and I say, all right, like it's the Bruins in the tier of their own. Then they, you look at the Toronto Maple Leafs, Tampa Bay Lightning. You, the, de- the, the Devils f- find themselves there. The Colorado Avalanche find themselves there and do you have the Rangers right there or just below and we'll talk to Ken Danico about the New Jersey Devils in just a moment's time and you know just just on the on the Devils side of things I mean they're a team that you look at and they don't give up a ton like they're the goals against so far this year you're talking about one of the better teams so far in the National Hockey League um, this year and they've been able to score a lot of goals they play with a lot of pace and one of the questions that you kind of have is does that goaltending hold up come to playoffs? Is that a team that has enough experience? Because if you look at it just from, hey, how they're playing, the, the roster construction of things, there's no reason why you should fade them, you know, just based on how they've played. The only reason you'd fade them is, hey, how much confidence do you have the goaltending is going to hold up? And a team that hasn't had any playoff success because they haven't been in the playoffs together are going to be able to have that type of push. But with the way they've played, they're a really exciting hockey team. And talk about that and more. Uh, let's bring in Ken Danico into the conversation, former National Hockey League defenseman. And Ken, it's, it's always a pleasure talking with you. And, you know, I was kind of joking on the show. We've had these discussions in the past. And any time we've talked, and I know you've been doing uh, color uh, on MSG and NHL Network for a while. And we've talked about defense and, you know, how this team comes together. But on this Devils squad, how impressed are you by the maturity they've shown so far this year? Oh, that, that's been a big part of, I, I believe, why they've had so much success this year. I, you know, to be honest, and just like everybody else going into the season, did I think they'd be better? Absolutely. Did I think some of the young guys would grow? Certainly. Did I think they'd be where they are right now? Absolutely not. I mean, you never can expect that. You always just remain going into the season cautiously optimistic. But, you know, the way they played in tight games all season long, that's the maturity uh, I think you're kind of talking about because they've really shown like they're an experienced club along the way as far as being able to play in different situations, come from behind or tight 2-2 games and and remain calm and poised and, and play the game the right way. And certainly they've gotten goaltending this year. That's been a big difference. But to go from 63 points to where they are last year, to where they are today. A lot of it is maturity. And and I also credit some of the veteran guys. I mean, they obviously have to be, you know, lending their experience and knowledge like the Palats and the Hollas, Brendan Smith, even all these guys, you know, have played in some meaningful games along the way. 
And I give the assistant coaches a ton of credit because sometimes we don't give them enough, and they change three assistant coaches, and there's no uh, mm-hmm. no doubt in my mind a big part of their improvement defensively, penalty kill, um, power play with Brunette, McGill on the back end, uh, Sergey Breland, a three-time Stanley Cup champion who I was uh, teammates with during all those three cups. And uh, he's brought a lot of knowledge and experience to these guys to make sure that uh, on a nightly basis and you, you stay even keeled and you don't get too, too ahead of yourself. And they've been able to do that. And that kind of has surprised me a little bit from a young team. But the guys I mentioned, I give a lot of credit. Well, and, and that's kind of what stood out to me when, you know, I was having a discussion about teams that play the right way, the details that you talk about, the discipline and, you know, time and place, having the discipline, even if you're down a goal to not cheat, not try to do something that's going to create that second goal against that puts you out of the game. You might lose the game, right? Yeah. I mean, sometimes, sometimes you're down a goal, you don't cheat, you might lose that hockey game. But if you have that discipline, you'll still win more than you lose. And that's a hard thing to wrap your head around as a player, isn't it? No, absolutely, and especially the way the game's gone, and I've gone with the times. I love the high, the great speed and, and the creativity and the great skill of all these young players, and sometimes, and I saw it last year, I saw it the last handful of years in New Jersey where, yeah, you just try to do too much and you don't take care of uh, the other side of the puck, and what that means is when you're up 3-2, you're still go, go, go. Well, there's, there's a time and place. Uh, to go. You don't want to go one on three and try to beat a guy and turn it over and the other team ties the game up in transition. Those are the improvements, I think, this team and the maturity that's where they've taken their step. You have to be able to defend to win in this league, regardless of of the way the game's gone, as I just mentioned, where it's a little more high octane. It's a little more fun for the fans, for us, but certainly, I think. And the Devils are that type of team, a speed team, a team that uh, wants to puck a lot, but uh, the only reason for me, a big reason, is exactly what we've been talking about, why they've had success this year, because they balanced it out. You have to be able to balance it out. You look at all the top teams, teams that have won the Cup, Tampa Bay Lightnings and uh, and the Colorado Avalanche, who are more of a puck possession team. A lot of times there's different ways to defend. They defend because the puck's on their stick so much, in particular last year on their run to the Cup. Mm-hmm. Tampa Bay loses to Columbus after a great year. A few years back in a four-game sweep after an incredible season and winning the President's Trophy. So what do they do? They adjust. They add different pieces. They add guys that are a little grittier, guys that play defensively, guys that block shots, guys that take the middle of the ice away. And they haven't looked back since then, and that's why they're always a contender. Well, and that's the that's the big thing, right? And you talk about also having the continuity, having having Lindy Ruff there for three years, even though they missed the playoffs a couple a couple of years in a row before this year, and even early this season, you have fans, you know, chanting for him to get fired. You had the team struggling a little yeah. bit, but but it's but it's about you know sticking to your having the courage of your convictions, right? As an organization, believing that this is the guy, and sticking with it, not listening to the fan anger, and even though you had growing pains, if you're seeing you know under the hood that they are making these improvements that discipline's coming in then even if the record's not there those are things you can build on and certainly it looks like they have built on them yeah and, and i give general manager tom fitzgerald a lot of credit for that for sure because it is not easy you hear the noise you hear the outside noise and the frustration and rightfully so all fan bases are passionate they want their team to be successful and you know it's been it's been a tough goal of it the last handful of years in New Jersey, but you saw what he was building. You saw the draft picks and, and the development of the young guys. And, and, and yes, 
Lindy Ruff, who I know is well-respected amongst a lot of these guys, but they did bring in the new guys. That's what I'm talking about. I mm-hmm. think that was a big, a big factor. It really is to support Lindy and, and give him fresh new ideas. And Lindy really is one of those guys that delegates responsibility. He's a great communicator. He's been around the game a long time. So we hear two sides of that. Well, he's old school, the old school thinking, why don't they uh, try new type of uh, younger coaches? Well, no, Lindy's adjusted. He's adapted. He knows he's a great (laughs) communicator. And then with all that experience, well, then that's uh, a good combination along the way. And, yeah, that was classic. I mean, I, I loved it. Fire Lindy after two games and sorry Lindy <laughs> after the, they were on an eight-game win streak going into that 13-game win streak where they built up a lot of equity for themselves and a lot of points along the way. So they were allowed to go through tough times. You're going to an 82-game schedule, especially with a young team, when in December they struggled. But they were able to get dig themselves out of it. It wasn't the same old Devils from previous years and that again part of maturity that you started uh, right o- off the bat talking about uh, uh, with me uh, uh, the way they played all season long is just a lot calmer a lot smarter and they defend well I mean I look at some of their defensemen mm-hmm. that's been a big part where Siegenthaler you know if you look at the metrics yeah. and I look at that you use it as a tool you use it you know, I, I use the eye test a lot, too. I don't they say it's the end-all, be-all. But from a metric standpoint, Siegenthaler and Severson are in the top ten in a lot of defensive metrics because mm-hmm. they have good gaps. They deny zone entries. They win puck battles. And collectively as a team, they've got a nice balance on the back end, which they haven't had because it was far and few between as far as a group of defensemen over the last handful of years, but now all of a sudden you got Dougie Hamilton having his best year. You need that big offensive weapon for sure. And, and all those things, Gray's, uh, John Marino's come in and been a godsend. He's steady as a rock. Something that sometimes goes overlooked because everybody looks at the points, assists, and offensive numbers, but uh, without, without uh, John Marino kind of slotting in properly and slotting other guys properly, all of a sudden, you've got a pretty good defense core when you've got a guy like Dougie Hamilton playing the way he's capable of and bringing a lot of offense, one of the top offensive defensemen in the game as far as points are concerned. Uh, nobody's near Carlson, but he's right up there in the top three or yeah. four. And you need that You need that stud. So I'm a believer in balance, no question about it. If you're going to go four grueling rounds, you have to be able to win different ways. This team's finding, finding that out and learning how to do that, and they, that's what they've done for most of the season, we will see how good it is and how uh, what it's like going into playoffs. It's a whole new season. But, uh, yes, for all intents and purposes, I finally can say, because I'm very cautious yeah. all the time, I think they're getting in the playoffs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that's going to happen. I think the question really is, like, you know, how far can this team push it? But you're right. I mean, it really is just experience to me, right? Can, I mean, that, that's the only question I have for a team that's very young and hasn't been in, in the dance together. They'll get there. It's just, you know, can it all come together quickly? And, it, and it's, it's, it's exciting because they have all it takes. It's just, you know, is it going to be one of those things where it, it comes together for them, come the playoffs, and they can handle the moment, right? And, you know, the old saying, and it's a cliche, uh, playoffs is a whole new season. And, and I'll look back just from experience. When in 1994, we came second to the New York Rangers in the 
regular season. They won the President's Trophy. We were second. We were 0-6 during that regular season against them, or we, and, and we ended up only six points behind them. Come playoff time, we meet them in the Eastern Conference Final. Yes, at the end of the day, we lost in double overtime game seven. But we threw that out the window. I mean, they could have had that psychological edge, 0-6. Mm-hmm. They beat us six times during the regular season. It was totally different come playoff time. So it is a new season. How these guys handle it is anybody's guess along the way. I think they're more well-equipped. But I think that's why Tom Fitzgerald added a guy in the offseason in free agency like an Andre Pilat, uh, Mr. Clutch, a guy that knows what it takes. And, and that experience can really resonate throughout your team. And, and the hollows, and, and like I said, he's had playoff experience. Brendan Smith and guys that, you know, the young Guys, sometimes like the Hughes and Bratz and Heishers, who have taken an enormous step. Dawson Mercer. Well, uh, sometimes the less you know, the better. And these guys are going to go out there, put loose and fancy free, and see where it takes them. So I'm not a, one of those guys that believes all the time it's just experience, experience, experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you need some of those veteran guys that have been there, and that's what they've added. Uh, but sometimes a young, exuberant group you know, can can make a run, and, and we will see. And I go back to 88. I always use experience where our team had never made the playoffs my first five, six years in existence with the Devils. In fact, we were winning 17 games a year. Made the playoffs the last game of the year in 1988 on a 7-0-1 run. Went right in, beat the first seed Islanders, beat the second seed Washington Capitals, and lost a tough seven-game series to Boston, or we would have went to the Stanley Cup. So you never say never just because you don't have a lot of that experience that other teams have, whether it's the Lightning, whether it's the Canes now who have had a lot of experience in the past, and the New York Rangers who's had some success the last couple of years. And and it looks like, uh, for all intents and purposes, they're on a collision course to maybe meet their arch rival in the first round. But maybe they have ideas of trying to catch Carolina here, even though Carolina has a couple games in hand and, and one point ahead. For me, it's just about starting at the start of the season, getting in where they finish. I know the fans reach for the stars and everybody's like, well, now we got to do this and that. And I'm going, let's just, you know, pump the brakes. They're going to be a playoff team. Let's see where it takes them uh, when the new season begins. In conversation with Ken Danico, three times Stanley Cup champion, defenseman, and Devils color analyst here on the Jeff Merrick Show. And, you know, we, we were talking about adding John Marino, and one of the things that stands out to Marino is the fundamentals in his game, defending. And, you know, you're kind of mentioning that, like, a lot of the guys, the gap control is good, the Siegenthaler pair with Severson that did a good job in defending, not getting, you know, behind the goal line too many times. They, they keep, they stay pretty tight in front of the goal. And a guy like Marino, his fundamentals are good. His stick's always in the right lane. He's good on the PK. How, how much of a change are you seeing with defensemen coming up where it's more of a struggle for guys to do the fundamentals of defending better? And when you see that, like how much does that impress you when we see guys, you know, having the fundamentals down on the defensive side of things? Well, I, I think more so, and especially in today's game, it's tougher to defend. Like, yeah. uh, starting with the speed we talked about uh, during our, our talk here, as far as the game is faster, the game, uh, the players are more skilled, top to bottom, fourth line guys can toe drag you now and blow by you, which maybe that wasn't the case in my era where it was a different game and it's a different time where it was more about physicality on those uh, bottom lines and and toughness and and also fighters as well. Now you just have to be able to move your feet. You have to have a quick active stick, a good good gap, and it's a conscious effort. That's what Marino does. He's a smart, intelligent hockey player, not the biggest guy in the world, 
but he his body position, his stick, his his thought process, he's cool under under duress as far as when he's surrounded. He doesn't just throw the puck away. So he's got a real good hockey IQ like some of their defenders. And that's what makes a good defenseman to me nowadays. Look, mm-hmm. everybody wants points and wants to go, 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 and understandably so. But you need some guys that can defend. And they've had guys this year that have done that well. And Marino's had a big big impact in that. Now, like, don't get me wrong. Like, I, I look at top defense in this game as far as defending. And a guy like Mikhail McCarr, the puck is on. And I play with a guy like Scott Niedemar. When the puck is on your stick and you're kind of setting the tempo of a game, well, that's one hell of a way to defend, too, because these guys are just so skilled and so powerful in their skating ability that uh, whether it was a Niedermeyer in my day, who was my partner for a long time, or a Kale McCarr, they defend well because they can recover and get back with that great skating ability and speed and mobility. And, yeah, the puck is on the stick so often that they don't have to defend as much, and that's one way to defend as well. But I think it's five-man units, too. And if you look at the young Devils forwards, it's not just on the defenseman. Uh, certainly you want a good core that defends. Look at the Boston Bruins. When you got Lindholms and, and McAvoy's, those guys just play two good two-way hockey and a big reason why their team is so successful. But the Devils' young players, like the Mercers, the Heishers, um, these guys came into the league 200-foot players. You didn't have to teach them that. They were already responsible, and I think that's been a big factor along the way as far as the team in general defending better because these guys play very well in their own zone. They they take pride in it. Jesper Brad as well, even though he's a dynamic mm-hmm. offensive player. You watch him backtrack. You watch him go to the right man. You watch him help his defense out with his speed and going to the right area, the right lane, or deflecting a pass. But uh, for defense, that quick active stick is so important. Uh, you know, I, I look at a guy like Jacob Slavin in, in Carolina, and length is important. Length, reach, height. If you're mobile, he's mobile. He defends extremely well. It makes makes it very difficult because he closes the gap. He angles well. Those guys are really hard to beat, and they're really frustrating to try to beat during the playoffs. And the Devils have a few defensemen along the, that mold uh, that do that, but you need the help from your forwards. And, and that's something I've really noticed a big difference this year because the last handful of years they were – I hate to say it, clueless in their own zone. Most guys, you know, yeah. as, as a, a unit, but I, you see the continuity. You see everybody buying in. You see everybody their commitment. But guys like Mercer, I use Mercer and Heaster in particular. When you got young and we didn't know what to expect from Dawson Mercer. I mean, it turns out to be a tremendous pick at 18. Give Tom Fitzgerald a ton of credit. The kid's all hockey, and he knows where to be on the ice in all three zones. And yeah, his offensive game has come a long way. And, 50 points already this season, but but they already they didn't have to be taught uh, coming in the league like that they were absolutely defensively irresponsible, and that's helped out uh, and helped the cause along the way for having a good year. Well, and, and that's what, you know, you mentioned uh, forwards having to back check so hard. And that's the thing. I mean, you, you obviously need to have some uh, intelligence to two-way intelligence to be a good forward back checking. But a lot of it is skate really hard. And the amount of work you got to put in to consistently be on the right side of the puck, right? If you're back checking and you've got a forward who's, who's in the middle of the ice, do you take the middle away, right? If you go into a board battle, are you going in the right side of the puck so you can't spin off and go towards the net? And that's just straight up effort, isn't it? And the hard work and discipline to be able to do that consistently. Yeah, efforts, uh, smarts, intelligence when you talk about going to the right area. Every team has 
maybe a little variation or different um, structure of what they want to do coming back uh, when the team, when the opposition's in transition. Some want the forward to skate all the way across the ice and, and, and challenge the puck carrier so the defenseman can able to set up and just, you know, take the middle away. Uh, depending on how how quickly he's closing the gap, and that's the decision you have, the defenseman has to make. Do you go and take the puck carrier barreling down the right side, say, or do you wait for your forward? Because some coaches, and I know the Devils do that mm-hmm. at times, where they want the defenseman to stay patient, and, and and I like that a lot of the time because so often when you charge a Kucherov or you charge certainly a Connor McDavid, who's all world, we know that they just wait for that. If you lean, if you reach. They put the puck between your stick. Your skates are a pass. Uh, when you move your stick left, they put it right across the other way for a, for a great scoring chance. So sometimes uh, less is more, patience, and you allow your forward to come back all the way and let them continue to skate mm-hmm. wide because the second you make a move, these guys are too good, too intelligent, handle the puck too well, uh, they'll pick you apart. And that's, again, I've seen a lot more patience in the devil's game, uh, but throughout the league, that's when I watch defending, I'm going, when defensemen go down too early, especially on a rush, I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't say don't go down. Uh, there, there is a time and place to go down and leave your feet. But too often defensemen slide right out of the play and, and all these skilled players just wait for that and they toe drag you or they just move to the middle, fake a shot, and before you know it, it's it's – two-on-one or a backdoor play and in the back of the net. So I, I learned from the great Larry Robinson. I'd played 10 years in the league. I left my feet a lot. And I would consider my shot blocking was one of my better attributes. But Larry told me, Kenny, I want you staying right. on your feet more. I learned more in the first week from him than I did in my first 10 years of, of my career prior to him coming just from right. stick positioning. And that doesn't change even in today's game as far as the only difference is uh, – I would say top to bottom, everybody's a little better skater, more mobile, a little quicker. Right. So now it makes it even tougher to defend, and especially you leave your feet because you got fourth liners that can dance you now. It's a whole different ball game. So that patience and biding time and good quick stick, staying on your feet, for me anyway, is important. I think you leave your feet only in desperation last second when there's no other option for the puck carry. He's in deep, exactly. getting close to the goal, and he can't, he can't get it across. And then Precisely. you take away that, that that bottom of the ice in the pass. But when you're starting to go down, I see guys go down when he's three feet inside the blue line, he fakes a slap shot, and you're out of the play. You're done. And all of a sudden, exactly. all kinds of chaos. <laughs> no ensues. Hey, Ken, this is great stuff, man. Really always appreciate your time. Devils analyst, former National Hockey League defenseman, and we'll chat again soon. That's Ken Danico. Great insight on defending. We'll, we'll, we'll delve into that a bit more. Shane Malloy's coming up next right here on the Jeff Merrick Show. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Back in on the Jeff Merrick Show, it's Satyar Shaw filling in on this Monday. Good start to the show so far. We spoke about playoff, cup contending teams in the playoffs this season. Defense, why it matters so much, and we discussed that with Ken Danico. We'll continue that thread talk about defense a bit especially when it comes to trying to draft defensemen and also what's more important 
the players you draft, the roster you put together, or the play- people you choose to put that roster together for you. And we'll talk about that with our next guest who joins us now. And it is our good friend Shane Malloy, host of Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio and PhD candidate. And Shane, we always chat on Canuck Central, usually talk about prospects. But, you know, we, we love talking about defense as well, especially trying to find defensemen uh, in today's National Hockey League. We know a lot of guys have great offensive skills. We see it across the National Hockey League. It truly has become the golden era of NHL defensemen, especially in terms of skill, production, skating. And a lot of those guys can defend as well. I mean, look at Miro Heiskin, look at Kale McCarr, the steps he's taken. Even Quinn Hughes locally in Vancouver has been doing a fantastic job taking his game to that next level. But in terms of trying to find young players, young defenders who can defend the right way, why is that becoming harder and harder to find, Shane? Well, it also takes patience. I mean, I go back to a quote from Dave King. He was a longtime NHL coach and coach of the Canadian national teams. And he made a really interesting point about the difference between decisions and choices. Now, if you look at a lot of the high-skilled defensemen that we see in the NHL or even as prospects coming through the systems, is, you know, they make really smart decisions with the puck in terms of, you know, they'll pick up the puck behind the net, they'll look up the ice, they'll find their option, and they'll find the correct option, and they'll make a decision instantly. And then they move the puck or they skate it out. And there's, then there's choices. And decisions, you know, are difficult, but choices are hard. And the difference between the two is, if you're making a choice as a defenseman, do you take a hit to make a play? Do you take a sh- shot block knowing that's going to hurt? Do you go in front of the net and you're battling a power forward knowing that you're going to take punishment? Do you, are you willing to go into you know, into the cycle and break up a cycle. I think sometimes when we look at it from, you know, different types of metrics, and I'm sure Ken Danica was talking about that as well, is mm-hmm. is understanding the defensive metrics. And breaking a play and stopping a play is just as important as making a play. And I think in the public sphere, there isn't as much sophistication around weighting and the metrics of defensive play, particularly defensemen. So they get a little bit more maligned. So, you know, you had conversations around when Ben Sherratt was traded or Joel Edmondson or players like that. I mean, Ken Danico is a perfect example in, in his era is that you have to be able to understand that those players have tremendous value because they're going to make the choices that are necessary for you to win Stanley Cups. Because if you don't have players, particularly defensemen, who are willing to make those choices to sacrifice for the team, then you don't win. You can't have just guys making really good decisions all the time. And they can say, well, you always have the puck, but you don't. I mean, for, even if you're a really high-possession team, you're not going to have the puck 40 or 45% of the time. So what happens then? Because sooner or later, it's going in your defensive zone. So, you know, as a young defenseman, it's really about making sure that you remain very poised in terms of when you're controlling your gap, your stick's in the right position, a lot of consistency in that respect. But then when that puck gets close to the net, down low, like that's when choices are made. And it's the difference between winning and losing, particularly in the playoffs. We talk about defending the playoffs. And for young defensemen, it's really about watching those defensemen who make really good choices. And that's the difference between, you know, those players that play in the NHL and those young prospects that don't. 
Well, and there's a huge, and you know, and that's the big differentiating factor. I mean, you can coach guys to be in the right spot, like system-wise. They talk about, hey, here are your roles, here are your responsibilities. These are the areas we expect you to occupy. So be here for these circumstances. But then that's just the knowing where to be. Then it's the when you're in your spot, how do you actively defend from that spot? How do you assess threats from that spot? And part of that is your systems, what you're supposed to take away, and not take away. But there, that next step of once you're in that spot and assessing the right threats, that's a whole other challenge, isn't it? Well, a lot of it is based on choices of how hard you battle and, and how you go about doing that. Do you understand leverage once you've, mm-hmm. you know, connected with another body? Like how, and especially if they're larger than you, you know, how do you get it on their knees, on their hips, underneath their armpits? You know, how do you get leverage in that respect? Um, how do you be able to handle being pushed on and then understand how that body body control of how to roll off that particularly well i mean all those things how do you break up a cycle go ask the twins <laughs> like yeah. you know how how you know how much fun they had cycling against you know other defensemen and defensemen how much that caused them fits in terms of that right so it's all you know st- strategically and tactics you know if you're a smaller defenseman you got to get on the forwards hands got to take away their hands uh, because they can't score otherwise from so from that perspective there are some tactical things that certainly can be taken advantage of, but a lot of it, you know, success in the defensive zone is really based on choices. And is that something you think we're going to see a shift back to in terms of players coming up, or, or are we just seeing a different trend and trajectory where players are going in terms of their preparation to become National Hockey League players? Well, it depends on who you speak to. If you speak to, like, I guess you would call you know, more of the media and more of the people on social media, you know, I think, you know, they're going to talk about the areas, the types of defensemen that are the most intriguing to them because they're easier to measure. But if you're speaking mm-hmm. to NHL personnel, that conversation is entirely different. And that doesn't mean they don't covet those players because obviously they do. You know, often the defensemen are rare. There's a lot of scarcity. But there's a way that you have to defend in the defensive zone, particularly in the playoffs. And that has to be consistent across despite your size. But if you're a bigger defenseman, uh, these are things that you're going to have to do because you have only so many tools in the toolbox. You have to make sure that you do those really well. And when I have conversations with NHL personnel, that's a big part of our conversation. Well, and and Shane, you know, you and I were talking about this before in in preparation for the hit, and one of the things we're going to shift towards here is it's it's great to talk about the types of players, right, how to draft players and how to identify talent and and how to put a team together. But what's more important, the players that you draft or the people you put in place to draft and develop the players you're looking for? From my perspective, I think, you know, because the players – in your roster change so frequently. Take a look at how many players are left on the St. Louis Blues Stanley Cup winner from 2019. How many are left? Very few, right? Mm -hmm. So rosters turn over. For me, if you want a legacy, if you're interested in having the type of organization, like say the Washington Capitals who constantly make for like 20, 20 years, they're in the playoffs. Detroit Red Wings did the same. You have to be able to hire the right people in your organization and base it on meritocracy if you can i know in all industries there's you know meritocracy sometimes is not um happens but i think in in the nhl you can look through and i've had the very great fortune over the last 17 years on hockey prospect radio where i've interviewed all the up-and-coming directors of all the different departments the assistant general managers general managers 
So I've been privy to those conversations for 17 years and have interviewed the majority of them 10 times or more. So I have, all, I have this tremendous amount of qualitative information. And regardless of how much information they give out, they always leave you breadcrumbs of how they make decisions and, you know, how they think. And then if you go and take a look at all the quantitative information of like, which teams consistently draft and develop well, how, how come these teams always have a really strong farm system? How come they always draft well? How come they get all these players into the NHL? They don't always have to be superstars, but they get them in. So if you looked at, you know, for example, 2006 to 2015, the first 10 years of the salary cap era, the best team at drafting and developing was actually the Pittsburgh Penguins, even though they drafted consistently late. So who was the general manager during that time? Ray Shiro. Like who was running their uh, the drafting, you know, in, in that respect? You know, go take a look at who was doing that. That was Randy Sexton along with Jay Heinbuck, who was in their player development. You know, that was Tom Fitzgerald, who's now the GM in New Jersey. But, you know, those are the kind of things you have to go back and take a look at. And the quantitative evidence only tells you so much. And then you have to go have conversations with people because that's where the context and nuance lies. And that's where you can find out really what's going on and, you know, who consistently can produce players. And if you look at historically in the salary cap era, and I talk about after the salary, you know, once the salary cap era came into place, because for me, the whole evaluation of players and the value of players changed with the salary cap. So you look at teams like Pittsburgh, as I mentioned, the Washington Capitals, the Anaheim Ducks, the LA Kings were always consistently in the top five of drafting developing. So you ask yourself, okay, who is in, place during that, those time frames. Well, LA Kings, that was, you know, Mike Fuda and Mark Unetti running those drafts in, in that respect. Or you look at, you know, you know, other players, like another personnel, like, you know, Calgary Flames, Todd Button's done a really good job. You know, Von Carpenter, I think is, you know, underrated with the Vegas Golden Knights, one of the people that helped them turn that franchise into a bit of a juggernaut, you know, uh, from that respect. So, and I know, Every once in a while, we have names that come out there, but it's really, you know, if I was a consultant for a team, if I was recommending, I would, you know, for an organization or an owner, sat, I would seriously show them lists of people where, okay, here is all their skill sets. This is what their track record is. This is what their strengths are. And, you know, you take it from that. I mean, and, you know, recently the only organization that's looking to make changes is the Philadelphia Flyers. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a really interesting um, case study to see what they do in terms of their personnel. Um, I, I'm expecting Daniel Breyer to be the GM, um, up, you know, for the rest of this season and for seasons after that. Well, I mean, the most important thing is to get your top guy right. I mean, whether that's your GM slash president or president, and then that, that person hires the GM you have to make sure you nail that person so then that person can fill out, like you mentioned, those roles and identify the, the people that you need. But in terms of somebody winning a GM job, how much of that just comes down to an owner liking somebody, just personally? Well, certainly that matters. I mean, we'll, let's look at the Philadelphia Flyers, for example. So Daniel Barrero is expected to be the general manager, but they're looking for a president of hockey operations. Mm-hmm. So what type of person are you looking for for the Philadelphia Flyers? Because not all people are going to be the right fit. There may be candidates that, you know, have the capabilities, but, you know, I look for is someone who is a CEO because that's really what they are. They're a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. So do they have the practical experience in a hockey operations department? That's a must. Do they have practical experience in business outside of hockey? That's very important. 
It would be great if they had academic experience as well to rely upon. And then they also have to understand the marketplace they're coming into, like the Philadelphia Flyers. Like if yeah. I was looking at that situation, the two names that jump out to me first are Ray Shiro, um, obviously whose father was the head coach of the Philadelphia Flyers and won cups there. You know, he grew up around the Philadelphia Flyers. He understands what the Philadelphia Flyers are in terms of their legacy, in terms of what their character is of that organization. Ed Schneider, he built the entire culture of the Philadelphia Flyers. It has not waned from that standpoint. So Ray would understand that, and obviously a great track record. He built the Pittsburgh Penguins from 06 to 15, and then he left to go to New Jersey, and then they won subsequent cups after that. Or you look, another name, which is really intriguing, is Dave Poulin, who you know works for TSN as an analyst. But Dave has an excellent experience in hockey operations, was a longtime coach in college hockey, but also has practical business experience you know, in Wall Street and in other areas, but also was a captain of the Philadelphia Flyers. And one of the factors that I really like about both these gentlemen, Ray or Dave, is they both have the ability to manage up to a corporation in Comcast. So they understand how to take the language of hockey and communicate that in business terms. So both of them have that capability, but also to mentor you know, the general manager, but then also help guide and, and pick out the best people in the industry. Because you can't just pick your friends or people that you know that you're comfortable with. You really have to do your due diligence to find out who are the best in the industry, who are the best at, that, at their positions consistently over a decade. And if you can find those people and put them in the positions to be successful and then not micromanage them and get out of the way, you could have potentially a juggernaut franchise for 10 to 15, 20 years. And that's really ultimately what you're looking for. Because at the end of the day, great personnel groups will find players. And the players will turn over every, you know, five to seven to 10 years. But that group will keep finding players. And we've seen it happen. Uh, you know, I could go through many organizations that have done a fantastic job in that respect. So it's just, it's fascinating for me more so to see how, how NHL personnel are hired more than sometimes the player acquisitions. Well, and then, you know, obviously that those are the big ones, right? Your, your president and then the GM and then the directors of scouting, AGMs and all that. And then you get to the scouting level. Now, in terms of the scouts, obviously you need good acumen, but I've spoken to a few scouts who say, Sometimes what we need is real clear direction for what we're looking for, with the things that we're looking to add and the things we should focus in on. What's more important? Having Obviously, having an eye for scouting is important, but in terms of having the right scouts, is it about having a, you know, A-plus scouts or being able to have good scouts and good direction in terms of what you're looking for? Well, you certainly need both. If you're, you know, what I would want from a manager is, you know, most importantly is, Leadership is one, and then a concise vision. This is exactly what we're looking for, and these are the skill sets on the ice that we're looking for in terms of priorities, and then these are the mental and emotional attributes that we prioritize, and this is how we're going to weight them so that you have a clear understanding of the type of players you're specifically looking for. That makes all the difference in the world because there's no ambiguity. There's no, like, there, there's no guessing from that, but that also that resonates not only from the amateur staff, but also to the player development department, your human performance department, your mental coaches, your coaches in the American League, because all of you have to work in synchronicity. You can't work in silos. So from that standpoint, so when you have that concise vision and, and 
and a strategy, it makes a huge difference. Now, you can always pivot a little bit, of course, uh, with your tactics, but as well, I think it's really important that not only do you obviously find the right people, but your plan is concise, and there's no misconceptions of what types of players that you're looking for and what the identity of the organization is. And I look at Philadelphia as an example. I mean, I know what a Philadelphia Flyer is, and I have since I was a kid, and that's because of Ed Schneider. And that type of character and that type of um, legacy is going to continue on. And you have to understand, like, sports organizations are different than general companies, even though mm-hmm. like these sports organizations are Fortune 500 companies. These are legacy identity organizations, and their stakeholders carry a lot of weight. You know, whether it's the fans or your sponsors or your broadcast partners, they put a lot of pressure on these organizations. And you have to understand that it's just not the same as running a normal company. And that's why these guys and these people in these personnel departments are under a lot of pressure, uh, more so than sometimes I think we realize. Yeah, and, you know, and I think those are the external pressures and everything else that's kind of going on are usually the things that get in the way because it's so easy to look at things and say, well, just do this or do that. And there are those internal, external, or sometimes external pressures, which uh, does frame the decision-making oftentimes in NHL front offices. And, you know, in terms of being on the same page, I mean, we've heard stories before about, you know, organizations that were so in so much disarray in terms of their organization scouting-wise that it have like two or three people show up at the same game being like, what are you doing here? It's like, well, I thought I'm covering this game. I don't know you're covering this game. It's, it's stuff like it's small things, but we, we always we joke about this in relationships that hey, it's the small things that become big things. They do matter, but in terms of running an organization, details like those small little details matter so much. Organization matters so much in terms of being seamless. And the thing you mentioned too about understanding what uh, organizational identity is, and at the very least, the things that we are truly looking for. And and I don't want to make it seem like hey, you're trying to create a situation where you only want square pegs to fit, in, fit into your situation and you can't uh, adjust or anything but if you have an idea of what let's say Canucks hockey looks like and this is something we talk so much about in Vancouver the types of players we want the style of play we want to have and how we're going to be successful if you have that built in you have that set then it becomes easier for you to at least identify who's not going to fit in for your team so guys that you don't go and look after and the guys that you go and try to draft and you try to develop but that all always kind of comes down to having real sense of direction and not a lot of teams truly have that ingrained as well as they should be. Like in Vancouver, like we mentioned, that's kind of been something they've been striving, they've been, been trying to find for the past decade, and now perhaps getting closer to that with the new management team. But it's not an easy thing to nail down. No, it's not. Uh, but it can be if it's there's clear, concise direction from the top. And one of the other yeah. things I always find you know fascinating is that I think NHL teams are Fortune 500 companies. They they are, and they should be operated and treated as such at an operational level. I think one of the worst things that ever happened to hockey operations is the word hockey in front of it. And it should be treated like an operations department where you have processes in place and procedures in place so that there is less missteps along the way. That you actually, so you can track how decisions are made properly, you know, so that you can reduce the amount of silos that you have. And that, you know, each person and each individual that works in there is actually helped and guided along in terms of how they make decisions and then where their strengths and weaknesses lie within the decisions they make. Because everybody has biases. So where's your strength and weaknesses as a talent evaluator? So if you understand that, then you can be coached and helped along. But that's no different from, like, the general manager position all the way down, down to, like, your part-time scout.
And that type of consistency, I think, is really necessary uh, from that standpoint. And to emulate Fortune 500 companies in terms of what they do from an operational standpoint and take best business practices and transfer those over to your operations department to make it as seamless as possible. Just to, for, for me, it's not necessarily about always hitting home runs on your in your decisions. It's really about not stepping on landmines. Is yeah. If you can avoid the critical errors within your organization, and this goes across all borders of any type of business operation, it makes a huge difference because what's the damage caused by a critical error? And then you have to try to recruit that. And there's limited assets within hockey operations. And there's only so many mechanisms that you can make up for those types of mistakes. And sometimes those mistakes last for more than one or two or three or four or maybe even five years. Uh, Shane, before I let you go here, great stuff, you know, delving through defense, building front offices, uh, and having uh, the type of vision uh, for an organization to be successful. But uh, uh, we, I would be remiss if I don't throw at least a draft question by you before we go here, and, and especially on Connor Bedard, who scored his 70th goal of the season for the Regina Pats last night, 141 on the season in 55 games. And we all know he doesn't even turn 18 until after the NHL draft uh, is happening anyways. I mean, what else can we say about Connor Bedard? Like, is there any sense of the hype is getting too much, or is every single bit of the hype justified? Well, uh, my only concern is can the kid handle it, and it looks like he can't. I think he has a really level head of understanding what is the outside noise and what's really important, you know, to him and to the people that are closest to him. So I think he can handle it. Does his talent deserve that type of attention? Of course it does. Of course it does. We don't see these players very often. I think the last one we saw, obviously, was Connor McDavid. Um, so from that respect. So it's going to be a really uh, interesting and intriguing draft class. I'm curious to see how things play out through the playoffs. Uh, you know, there's some college hockey games left on the docket as well, and we get the U18s coming up. So, you know, and the defensemen tend to late charge down a draft board with the draft boards being put together as well. So it'll be interesting to see when I get into – you know, the first week, second week of June, when I start compiling what the list is going to look like and cross my fingers that I'm correct because I've gone back and looked at some of my past lists. And, you know, there's been successes, and then there's been a, quite a few skeletons as well, but that's how you learn. <laughs> that's how it kind of goes, right? I mean, you are going to have some misses. It happens for everybody. But Shane, great stuff as always. He's Shane Malloy, host of Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio and PhD candidate. I appreciate, Shane, you taking a break from recording your own show and putting it together uh, to jump on the Jeff Merrick Show. We appreciate your time. Anytime, Sat. Have a great day. Uh, you got it. That's Shane Malloy. Make sure to check him out. Always great insight from Shane breaking down um, not only, you know, where things are going in terms of trying to find young defensemen who can defend and, you know, how that's becoming a harder thing to do, but also how you put front offices together. And, and it's fascinating, you know, hearing him talk about the importance of the individuals making those decisions. It, it's it's just so critical. And we've seen it firsthand, uh, you know, in Vancouver over the years in terms of Maybe not having the alignment on the front office, maybe not having the patience to do things the right way, being able to form an identity and, and, and having a cohesive working environment where people seemingly are pulling in the same direction, understanding the, the goals we're trying to accomplish. And it seemed like that was very muddied for a long time. And then we'll see if that does ultimately change here in Vancouver long term, but something, of course, to keep an eye on. And the other thing that we discussed there at the very end was Connor Bedard and uh, what he's done this year in his draft year. And you always kind of wonder, 
does the hype get too much sometimes? I mean, we're talking about him being a quote-unquote generational talent as well. You're talking about somebody who's, you know, being mentioned in the same breath as Connor McDavid, potentially when he came into the National Hockey League. It's expecting a lot, you know? And it's, it's at a point now where Connor Bedard may end up being a point-per-game centerman, and people are going to look at that as saying, oh, he, he's not the player we thought he was going to be because he's not Connor McDavid. And I think that's one thing I, always, I wonder about is, man, we're talking about saying that this guy's going to step into the National Hockey League and within a few years maybe being a top five, top six player. And maybe he is, and if he is, I mean, or, I, mean I, I love to see it, but it's just one of those things that you wonder about. Does at any point the hype get too much? But if you're looking at his play uh, at the CHL level this year, it is worth every bit of the hype. What he's doing is sensational. See the goalie score last night for his 70th, 70th of the season. Oh, BC native. We'll see if uh, the Vancouver Canucks have any luck. You know what? The way the Vancouver Canucks are playing, they might not even have a chance to draft Connor Bedard. I mean, if they finish the 12th uh, worst record, they can only finish if they win uh, the lottery at best pick second so the way things are going maybe Connor Bedard is never going to have a chance to play for his own team unless he forces free agency one day or pulls an Eric Lindros and I just don't think he's going to be pulling an Eric Lindros so for those wondering in Vancouver not sure we'll see what happens with the Vancouver Canucks all right we'll keep the conversations going uh, right here on the Jeff Merrick show up next is Corey Massasak we'll talk about the San Jose Sharks and Reimer James Reimer not participating in Pride Night we'll discuss that and more right here on the Jeff Merrick show Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Final segment of the Jeff Merrick Show. Satyar Shah filling in. A lot of fun here on a Monday. A lot to discuss. We've talked about the contenders, the playoff race crystallizing a little bit, the art of defending how to put front offices together to get the most out of your organization. And, you know, we let off the show as well, mentioning uh, the big story this weekend obviously happened in San Jose with the Sharks, where James Reimer decided to uh, not participate in Pride Night by wearing a jersey. And uh, we read a quote from Brian Burke uh, about that situation and how he feels about it. And to talk about what occurred in San Jose with the Sharks and, and the fallout, uh, we are now welcoming in Corey Massasak, who covers the San Jose Sharks, staff writer for The Athletic, uh, who joins us now to discuss this. Uh, Corey, thanks for joining us. And it seems like it's one of those storylines here about players participating in Pride Night or not. It's a continued theme in the National Hockey League. And it seems like every team, and I know Vancouver's is coming up and everybody covering these teams we're kind of wondering what's going to come up when it's this team's turn to have this night and you guys found out on the weekend yeah it was um i mean just to be honest it, it was a long week um mm-hmm. they you know like it was just one of those weird like the sharks announced on monday that that they were going to have players wearing jerseys during warm-ups and all the other initiatives that they were taking and like the whole week became about the jerseys and who was going to wear was somebody not going to wear them. They have mm-hmm. three Russians on their team. So people were wondering about them. Um, and you know, people like some players and like David Quinn were asked about it throughout the week and they kind of deflected and said, Hey, you know, we're going to, you know, we we have other games to play right now. And then, um, 
the team did not practice on Friday, and then we got there on Saturday, and um, you know we're told that you know somebody's somebody's not going to do this. So um, yeah, it's uh, you know I I mean I, you know I think I think the Sharks learned from maybe some mistakes that other organizations have made in dealing with this, um, and you know like our you know one of our writers Mark Lazarus wrote about a really good column about you know the they did from the team perspective, they did the right thing here by, you know, not, you know, by still going away, going ahead with it and having everyone else wear them. And, you know, by, you know, basically, you know, sort of making James Reimer, you know, uh, you know, defend himself or explain why uh, as best he could. And um, yeah. And then, so then, well, you know, just, it, they, they did, the Sharks did a lot of other things besides, the jerseys and um, it's obviously that that thing becomes the you know the number one yeah. storyline across the show. Well, and that's usually what happens, right? Especially with the focus on you know who is participating and who isn't participating. And you're right; it's kind of been the Russian players, and you know whether it's ironic or not, the Russian players did don the jersey for the for the Sharks. So that was an issue. Was James Reimer? And I think the point you made is a really salient one here that the Sharks decided to not do what happened with the Minnesota Wild, right, where they had plans to wear the jerseys and ultimately just did the stick on the tape, uh, the tape on the stick, and you know the Rangers scuttled where the jerseys and obviously uh, that created a lot of negativity it seemed like at least what the Sharks did was and like Lazarus pointed out in his article and it's a great read they listened to Reimer they they said fine you're you're allowed you're entitled to your choice here and we're not going to force you to do anything but if you're not doing this we're still doing this and you're going to have to face the media and, and discuss this and make a statement and I think that's the right way to go about this to not scuttle these plans and if somebody doesn't want to participate that's fine but you explain why you're not participating yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they, you know, look. He and you know, <clears throat> it was, it was definitely a oh, just a weird situation in general because I mean, people have known. I mean, James Reimer's been in the league for twelve or thirteen years, and he's kind of been known as this like one of the nicest guys anyone has ever met, and one of the best teammates anyone has ever had. All these things that people have said about him for twelve years, and that was one of the first things I wanted to ask him was like, look, in you know, in, a, in an hour or two, people are going to think very. Some people, some people are going to think very differently of you and how do you, you know, how are you going to handle that or how do you, what, what do you feel about that? And like he, you know, I, I, you know, he, he spoke for, I think it was 15 or 16 minutes and he, you know, answered a bunch of questions. Um, and, you know, I tried, I think, I think he tried to explain his position the best he could, but it just, you know, people aren't, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm trying not to, I'm not trying to disparage James too much, but he's, you know, there are a lot of people out there who just believe he's wrong, and and mm-hmm. so he's just going to have to sort of deal with that. You know, the rest of his the rest of his career. I'm I mean I'm, I'm there are some things moving forward here that I'm really curious about. Like, are the you know the Sharks have eleven twelve games left? I think eleven games left, and uh, I think they have five at home. Like, are they going to play James Reimer at home again? Like, are they? He is a that's the other thing here is that he's a, obviously a, an unrestricted free agent. Uh, at the end of the season, but I just I'm just curious to see like what the reception is going to be for him the next game if he plays tonight or if he plays sometime on this road trip or if he plays at home. Just all of that sort of is going to sort of be the next steps in this in this story. Well, and you know, obviously, it's a it's a polarizing story across the National Hockey League. Every fan base has a reaction to it either way, really, to some degree, but. You, you kind of mentioned maybe you got to keep him away from home games. What's the sense, the, the overwhelming sense from Sharks fans over all this? I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to use entire, you know, 
just use Twitter as a kind of a barometer effect. That's probably not the best thing to do in any of these situations. But I, I mean, I, I'm sure if you know the team did some polling with their season ticket holders, or if you did a poll, I mean, it's it's more it's overwhelmingly negative. Like, I mean, there's it's I, well, I don't want to say just because it's this part of the country or or whatever, but like it's just you know I, I don't I don't. You know, there you definitely saw there were definitely some people who were like, "Oh, I respect him more for this," because mm-hmm. but like there was that was definitely, I would say, overwhelmingly negative. Well, and the thing that's you know fascinating here from you see organizationally uh, and from the National Hockey League, and you know we can talk a lot about from the entire National Hockey League perspective. Do they do actually enough for inclusivity? But there's clearly an effort here from a lot of organizations, and it's not just about the Pride Night stuff. I mean, looking at the Sharks feed, I, I was impressed with some of the work they've done to try to reach other communities. I know they did a lot of work recently to try to reach the South Asian community and having a day for them and, and getting people involved. It's very clear that if for hockey to grow, we're going to have to go into non-traditional areas for the game to grow. I mean, participation is hard as it is, especially in Canada, and this is Canada that we're talking about. We know the challenges that exist in the U.S., but if hockey is going to take that next step and, and get bigger and get to a point where, you know, there's more revenue, there's more money, and, and it's growing, it is about reaching different fan bases and in reaching different people and, and making it about just hockey and forget everything else. And uh, you can see from the San Jose perspective, and maybe you can elaborate on, I mean, they're making a big effort to reach into a lot of different communities right now. Yeah, it's look, I mean, I think that's, you know, this, this again, this area in particular of the, of the, of the United States, I mean, there's, this is one of the most diversities, um, you know, in America, there's, there's a huge, um, Hispanic population here. There's a huge South Asian population here. There's you know, just just go down the line, and um, you know, like they've. I, I, I do. Th- I mean, I think the shark. I mean, I, I have had some. You know, some people reach out to me and say that maybe that they they feel like the sharks don't do enough, but they they do. They have definitely been certainly in re- in recent years have been trying more to reach more people, and you know, it <laughs> it's just this whole conversation is is about trying to you know if we're, we're talking about trying to reach new fans. Um, you know, it's just the, the message that people not wanting to just put on a jersey for 15 minutes sends is not, you know, obviously that's the Sharks have done what they can to sort of make it clear that that is not their stance and that they want to welcome everyone. Um, but, you know, they're, it's just, it's a, it's a challenge for the league in general to have these, these types of things happening, certainly. Uh, and, you know, Corey, uh, before we let you go, I appreciate your time. I know you've been uh, dealing with this a lot. A lot of questions coming in from across uh, North America and I'm sure internationally about the take on this because it's become such a big story. But, you know, since we're here talking about Sharks and just before uh, I'll let you go, I wanted to ask you just one question about directionally here for the San Jose Sharks and how they're headed, you know, beyond this season. What type of year has this been for the Sharks organization, you think? Obviously not a lot of success. This is a big story. Uh, how do you think the organization is trending under on uh, the vision of the new general manager, Mike Greer. Yeah, it's, it's it's definitely been a weird year. They, um, you know, they didn't. They've they've made it pretty clear that they organizationally do not believe in the idea of just outright tanking. Like they're not just going to tear things down and intentionally lose for several years to try to re rebuild this whole thing. Well, the team has kind of done it for them this year. Um, which you know, in the long run, might might be a might be a luck, kind of a lucky bounce. Uh, they you know they've it's been it's just been you know they've they've had a bunch of games where they've played well and not won, and now here they are stuck in this you know this like long losing streak. And yeah, I mean they've you know Mike Greer has sort of 
there have been some pretty clear things like they've wanted he wanted to revamp the, the sort of the prospect pool they've gotten a bunch of uh, a handful of um defensemen that were would you know they didn't have a year ago uh they wanted to get bigger and uh and now they're sort of the next step in this is you know hoping that the ping pong balls go their way and uh you know find that whoever that guy is that they take at the top of that draft is going to kind of be the you know he's going to kind of be the maybe like the linchpin of the of the next of the next sort of you know contending sharks team but we just don't know when that's going to be they would like it to be sooner rather than later but if you sort of look at them compared to some of the other teams in their in their situation and some of the teams that have gone through this before it, it might be a while so yeah uh final thing how how uh, impressed slash surprised are you by what eric carlson's done this season <laughs> yeah uh that's that seems like that has been the kind of the one uh the one good story slash shining light of the season um yeah he, he's been uh yeah he, I mean, he's been amazing i mean look he's his his production has fallen off here a little bit at the end of the year and, and i'm you know i'm i'm not you know, he's he's going to need another like three or four point outburst in a game somewhere here, I think, to get to 100 points because the just consistent one or two every night that he was getting before is with Timo Meyer gone and with five or six other guys gone, they're just not scoring goals. Um, so, but he like in, I mean, his his ability to create offense and to put passes on teammates' sticks on plays that it doesn't even look like there's anything there, and you know that that's still there. I mean, it was he just the other night. I was I was just thinking like, man, he's made three or four just you know, passes that only 10 other guys in the league can make. Uh, and the, the, nobody scored on them. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, no, they, he's, he's had a crazy, you know, kind of Renaissance season. It's, I mean, that's, I mean, it, it is going to be pretty interesting to me to see how the, you know, the Norris voting eventually goes. I, you know, I, I think if he slows down here a little bit and doesn't get to a hundred points, that might be a, a reason for some people not to vote for him. But I just, I haven't really seen a lot from the other the other, I mean, there are lots of other great defensemen. I just don't think there's anybody else having, like I point to last year, like Roman Yossi had, I think, 95 or 96 points, but yeah. Gil McCarr was obviously also just ridiculous. There isn't another player close to him right now in terms of production, in terms of, like, there's nobody that's, nobody's advanced stats are so much better than his. So, yeah, I think, you know, I mean, I think he's got a pretty good chance to win, but it, but it, it will be, like, I mean, I had done some research on this. Like, nobody has won the Norris Trophy from that position in the standings before, not even close. So so that's it will be sort of a – he's done a bunch of things this year where we're, we're like, he, nobody's done this in three decades. Nobody's done this in – et cetera. Like, winning the Norris Trophy on the you know 29th or 30th best team would be a first. Uh, yeah, no doubt. And uh, it, it's quite the resurgence from Eric Carlson. But, Corey, hey, appreciate your time. I know it's been a stressful uh, week or so for you, but I appreciate you making a little bit of time for us here on the Jeff Merrick Show. And uh, season's almost done, man. And, and we'll see if the summer has uh, better things in store for that organization, much like uh, my day-to-day covering the Vancouver Canucks. So I, so I feel your pain in terms of a team that's not going where they're supposed to be going quite yet. There's certainly been things to write about this year, that's for sure. So that's all yeah. That's all I can really answer. <laughs> the, <laughs> but, the content is there, right? Yeah. Uh, great stuff. That's Corey Massasak from The Athletic Staff Writer. You can follow him on Twitter as well. Great insight into what's happening with the Sharks at cmassasak22 is his Twitter handle. And, you know, wrapping up my thoughts on the, the situation with James Reimer, and we were talking about how the Sharks handled it differently than what we've seen 
it be handled from the Minnesota Wild, who were supposed to have their players wear the Pride jersey, but then ended up just putting uh, tape on their sticks instead. The Rangers had planned doing it, then scuttled their plans. The Sharks didn't scuttle their plans. Is that the, you know, did they handle it the best way possible? I know some people have the take of they shouldn't even allowed him to be part of the roster. They should have healthy scratched them. The only thing I say to things like that is in general, I'm big on trying to educate people in general. And that's not to say that people should get unlimited education. Otherwise, you know, you can always make that excuse and say, oh, you need more education, more education, more education. It's like, well, are you ever getting the message or ever learning about things? And in general, too, like when we talk about uh, players making a stance and saying things that are personal beliefs of, for themselves, I have a hard time, unless it's something that's illegal or something, to say somebody's not allowed to play or participate because of it. But I would say that the criticism is fair. And like like I mentioned off the top, I think the way Brian Burke nailed this, and he's done such a great job uh, throughout this. I know people have different opinions on Burkey with everything he's done, but in terms of inclusivity and the right to play, I thought he nailed it. I'll read it again. This is uh, from Brian Burke on Sharks Pride Night. I repeat that I'm extremely disappointed. I wish players would understand that the Pride sweaters are about inclusion and welcoming everybody. A player wearing Pride colors or tape is not endorsing a set of values or enlisting in a cause. He's saying you are welcome here, and you are in every single NHL building and that's what it's about i mean we have a social contract with our governments where we live like our like we decide like we live here we're citizens we pay taxes we fall follow the rules of law and as long as we follow the rules of law we can have the freedoms to live our lives the way we see fit what we decide to do in our bedrooms who we love who we marry what religion we have is nobody's business it doesn't matter, and it shouldn't, it shouldn't preclude you from being part of anything else. So to me, these discussions do not have to necessarily be religious. It doesn't have to be, oh, I'm religious, I can't say this person's allowed to play hockey or whatever it is. And I know James said he's not talking about players being allowed to play or not. He's welcoming people and, and all that. But it doesn't, you wearing a pride jersey or you being okay with donning those colors for one night, doesn't mean you're endorsing that lifestyle. It doesn't mean that it's going against who you are as a person and as a religion. Now, people have their own views and opinions, and you're entitled to your own views and opinions, and you're fair in, in having those. I understand it's a free country and all that, but it doesn't necessarily have to be tied to religion to accept somebody whose lifestyle is different than yours, as long as they're following the rules of law, paying taxes the way you are, and doing the things that everybody in a free society is doing, and that's my take on it in general. Uh, a lot of good reaction, as always, here we are on the show. We've had fun uh, today discussing a number of different things, obviously. The playoff race uh, being a big part of the discussion points here, because one of the things we talked about to start off the show here was over the course of the weekend and the Reimer story, obviously a big, big uh, discussion point uh, throughout the National Hockey League, but how the playoff races have really crystallized um, has been a big one for me. And we kind of started to show off talking about the contenders in the National Hockey League this season, the teams that, you know, have a real chance of winning a Stanley Cup. And, you know, we were kind of going through the list. And, and the list, to me, is a bit bigger than I expected when I really started digging through all this. And, you know, a big part of the level of success that you need to have comes down to defending. You know, and that's one of the themes we had talking to Ken Danico. We spoke to Shane Malloy about you know, how, how do you draft those players? How hard is it to find those guys and be able to take those steps as a team? And we've seen a real trend, you know, trend towards that. Now, 
what's been instructive, one of the reasons why, you know, I've really did, dug into that this year, it's because it's been such a big topic of conversation in Vancouver around the Canucks in terms of, hey, can you play the right way? Do you need to play the right way? And we kind of went through different phases of covering the team here. And I remember full well going back to 2014, 2015, and 2016 when there wasn't, you know, a lot of faith whether this organization was going to go anywhere. You had the Sedins in the twilights of their careers. Uh, Bo Horvat was the only young prospect coming up that had some potential. And it was and it kind of became about, hey, this team has no talent. I mean, we look at a succession plan. They have Bo. And outside of that, like, who's going to be your number one defenseman? Ben Hutton was the guy, right? Who's going to be your number two defenseman? There really wasn't anybody. Nikita Tramkin was getting love in Vancouver. And the only reason he got love is because he was very, very tall. He wasn't good, but he was very, very tall. That's all he, all he was. But the other thing, too, so it became a situation where Vancouver was so starved for talent that we looked at things and said, just bring guys in who can score goals or have some skill. You have to increase the skill level for your team. And the Canucks tried. And what became very evident was that type of skill is not getting you anywhere. And what you really need is difference-making high-level players. And if you're trying to build your team out, you got to find not only guys who play the right way, quote-unquote, but you need to have those real difference-making prospects. And that's where if your team's not ready yet, and if you're focusing in on trying to find the players who are, quote-unquote, the role players, that's where it gets dicey. So when we've been going back and forth and discussing all these things in Vancouver about, you know, what's more important, is it is it having a skill team? Is it having a team that, you know, plays the right way, quote-unquote, and is willing to battle and, and, and understands defensive responsibilities? And from a team-building perspective, you're never, ever going to change. You're, you're never uh, going to have the same take in terms of everybody agreeing, like, this is how you build a team out or whatever. But you're, you have to get that high-level talent high in the draft. There's no doubt about it. And once you get your t- people put in place, whether that's your first-line center, number-one defenseman, uh, whether you're talking about you know, finding you know, your most foundational pieces, then it becomes about filling your roster out with the right types of players, right? And from the team-building perspective, now we're here in Vancouver, and they need a lot more in terms of building their team out. They still need you know, long-term, maybe another sentiment, another high-end forward, two more defensemen. But when we start talking about what else are they missing? One thing they're missing is a third-line center that can just simply take matchups from their top two guys, a guy that can win face-offs consistently, a guy that can get on the PK, a guy that can play a shift in day in and day out. I mean, the Canucks are at a stage now, not that they should be going out and overspending on uh, guys like Jay Beagle uh, like they did in the past, but they're kind of like a Jay Beagle-type player away from solidifying their bottom six center positions and having a guy that can help them on the PK. And it's the progression of going from building your players, finding that high-level talent that can really push and having guys that that obviously have the two-way intelligence to some degree. But when you start building a team out after you find those foundational pieces, it becomes about building a team that plays the right way and that has players that understand systems play. And if you have the type of discipline that these high-end contenders do have, now it gives yourself it gives you a chance to do something and you know we'll see where vancouver goes we're joking that the way uh, they've been winning games seven of their last eight they're putting themselves out of the Connor bedard sweepstakes as they finish 12th the 12th worst record the best they can do is getting the second overall pick now hey i'm not saying adam fantilli or leo carlson are are not are not a nice constellation prize they certainly would be for any team that doesn't end up getting the first overall pick but pick second or third but you know they're kind of putting themselves in a position where they can't get that player they still need that guy 
But beyond that, when we look at where Vancouver is going, it's very clear that fundamentally, there's a lot of things that they're going to have to change. Now, uh, we've had a lot of fun here uh, on the Jeff Merrick Show today at Satyar Shaw filling in. And uh, I've had a lot of help here today. Uh, Tristan has done a fantastic job uh, putting the show together. And uh, Lance Kennedy's been tr- done a terrific job on the technical side of things. And uh, Tristan, uh, I know I haven't had a chance to work with you before, but that was fun. Man, we've had a good time here on the Jeff Merrick Show. And, you know, for you, do you have any parting thoughts before we let you go? No, excellent job, uh, Sat. Uh, I thought it was really fun. I thought you did an excellent job. Uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of the West Coast fans, uh, it's great that you get the exposure out here east. And, uh, you know, I couldn't have asked for a better uh, person to produce for. Awesome. Hey, listen, I was fishing for a compliment. I got one from you. I appreciate it. Uh, great stuff, Tristan. Great stuff, Lance. It's been a lot of fun. appreciate you guys uh, helping me out with the show today. And we've had fun discussing a number of different things. And uh, make sure to stay tuned on the Jeff Merrick Show because he's going to be back this week. He's getting a lot of work done here for the 32 Thoughts podcast and some special interviews that you should be staying tuned for. Uh, it is Satyar Shah. For everybody listening, appreciate your time. For Tristan, for Lance all you and uh, look forward to chatting with you again right here on the Jeff Merrick show on Sportsnet.